I I had a really beautiful childhood growing up as a free range bush kid um, on a big property, and um, you know, honestly, had a wonderful life. Grew up on a grew up on a station. Just spent my whole life bareback on the back of my big faithful Palomino, and uh, chasing things and jumping logs and rescuing critters, and it was just a beautiful life, beautiful childhood. But um, as is very common in outback Australia, a lot of us have to get shipped off to boarding school um, at around the age of 10 or 11 for high, you know, um, for lack of services and schooling close to home for a lot of kids. It's actually very common. So that was my story as well. So, you know, followed a well-worn path of bush kid, boarding school kid, university kid, and then off into agriculture and a career in and around um, rural ag all over Australia, really. Um, so I would say I'm extremely typical of, yeah, a country girl in, in outback Australia, really. So, mm. so it, it sounds idyllic. It sounds wonderful. Was it traumatic to leave the farm and go to um, boarding school or was that an, an exciting positive thing for you? Oh, look, not at all. Um, I I found it tremendously uh, difficult, actually. So everything went went from idyllic to traumatic. Back in back in the day, <laughs> back in the dark ages when I was eleven. <laughs> um, I'm forty five now, so yeah. Look, it was pretty archaic, I have to say. Um, extremely strict and no contact, no free. Um, contact with families weeks and weeks and weeks on end without being able to see your parents after being such a home kid and such a homebody with such a, a close connection with my mum in particular um it was savage I hated it um yeah so really I think when I when I look back through my history I think life beca- became tricky from about then onwards for me so it was like happy kid to holy moly, what am I doing in this place, in this all-girls super strict boarding school with, you know, I felt like my wings had been clipped. Um, it was a horrible thing. Um, even though it was one of the best schools you could go to, I, I did not enjoy it whatsoever. Um, yeah, and so between that whole sort of five years, or seven years, sorry, at boarding school and then a gap year and then university, I think my life really became disrupted from that point onwards. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting when you trawl back through the archives of your memories and you sort of make connections, don't you, once you're a grown-up and you think, ah, yep, I can see now patterns where, you know, things just started to shift. But um, anyway, look, I got through it and I did my time and um, – I, because I disliked my own boarding school experience so much, I um, I refused flatly to go straight on to university. I just dug my heels in and said to mum and dad, no way am I going straight into uni. I, I'm, I've got to escape. And so it's funny how these things all would set a scene for the disasters to unfold in my life after boarding school. Um it's interesting because I had felt so caged and so restricted um, when I did leave boarding school. I was in such a headlong race to get out, to escape, to spread my wings. I was almost like completely rebellious at that point. Um, and I rushed off and wanted to get a job 
um, out in the big wide world where I could be with the grown-ups and doing grown-up things and I was more than ready, so I thought, in my head. But in reality, I was ridiculously naive. I'd been exposed to very little real life because it was such a confined and strict supervised environment. I had no life experience to speak of and I, I just bolted into adulthood and I was not equipped. And as a consequence, my first year out, my gap year, I don't know, do you guys have gap years where you take a year off? Is that, does that make sense? Um, yeah, okay. some some people do, some don't. Okay. Some of us had yeah. gap multiple gap years. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, cool. So I just I just wanted to make sure the gap year made sense, so people understood what I was saying. But there you go, that's a universal term, obviously. But um, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, unfortunately for me, that gap year turned out to be the worst year of my life. Um, unfortunately, um, my innocent little self, who was a yeah, I was honestly a very naive kid. Um, during the course of that year, I was sexually assaulted and I was raped. And, yeah, it all pretty much went to – it all pretty much set a uh, precedent that would really alter the trajectory of the rest of my life. Um, yeah, so that's really the backgrounding of how Shanna went from a good kid to falling off the rails, I guess, metaphorically and in other ways. So – off the back of these traumas, I went on to university in our um, in the Australian um, Capital Territory, which is Canberra. So now you've got a little naive, traumatised country girl <laughs> landing in Canberra <laughs> and uh, going to university in the big smoke, which for me, sorry, in the city, which, uh, gee whiz, you know, I just wasn't equipped for that either. And enter alcohol. Um yeah, um, I don't know what it's like at your universities there, but uh, Australian universities are, I don't know what they're like now, I can't comment, but back then alcohol and getting extremely intoxicated was really in part of the initiation, I guess, culture. That's how we all, it, it was like a stupid, once again I'll use the word archaic, initiation sort of a thing like, you know, O-Week is all about, basically getting as drunk as you possibly can, for example. And so, yeah, alcohol entered my life at that point. I was seriously traumatised, really lost. I, I just, I was just scrambling mentally. Um, and alcohol became a way that I could kind of hide my pain, my confusion, um, my homesickness, my continued despair as to, you know, what the hell has gone on here in my life? Like... I don't understand really what's happened. And, uh, you know, that was an age before internet, if you can believe that. I mean, I can't believe how quickly the world has changed. But, yeah, there was no blogging or or online support things to say, hey, by the way, if you've experienced sexual assault or rape, this is definitely what you should do and, you know, you should get some help. But having come from a country situation with all that going on, um, I'd never gotten help for what had happened to me. So I blundered into this alter ego of this wild country party girl who hid behind alcohol and bravado. And it was all just a big bloody joke, to be honest with you, Jean. I I wasn't big and brave and bold. I was terrified. But alcohol gave me this persona to hide behind. And I, I went, all righty, well, if that's how I get by, then that's how I get by. And I became known as this wild cute fun blonde party girl who did all the crazy things and that was how it really all began yeah that's did anyone know 
Shannon, did anyone know what happened to you, or did you carry that alone? No, I really carried it alone. Um, it's a story as old as time. I thought it was my fault. I thought I had, I must have done something to deserve it. Blah blah blah. Like honestly, it is a story as old as time. Um, to this day, I haven't spoken about it with the people involved. Um, <laughs> uh, it's complicated. So no, look, I've I've really carried it and um, had to work through it the best I can. Yeah. So it sits there, unfortunately. So it's a perfect recipe for disaster, really. And so tell me about, did your, did your drinking then start out to be something that was, I mean, it's, so, it's difficult when you're in a, in a situation where excessive drinking is normalized. That was the school situation I was in, too, when I was a, mm-hmm. a teenager and a young adult. Um, certainly it was then. I think you're right. I think things might have changed a little now, but... Maybe that yeah. depends um, from place to place and hmm. group to group. <laughs> but yeah. it's it was to me. I mean, I think one thing that masked having a problem was the fact that everything looked okay, seemed okay, and you just probably looked like it beautiful young yeah. girl having fun to a lot of people. Yeah. Even, did you tell yourself that was? Did you did it feel oh. like that to you, or what? What? Was something feeling discordant to you? Well, no, honestly, see, it's really funny. When I was at boarding school, um, I didn't really fit in there and I got a bit of a hard time um, and I felt like a fish out of water my whole entire life at boarding school. Whereas at university, it was really bizarre. Everyone loved me from the moment I walked in. And so my desire to fit in and belong was so profound I decided instantly that if the way people love me is if I'm being wild and crazy, then I will do that and I will do whatever people tell me. Honestly, I was just so lacking in self-esteem and self-worth, um, especially off the back of what had happened to me. You know, I kind of had a deep subconscious um, thought going on already that, well, I must be worthless because that's how I've been treated, you know. So suddenly I kind of felt like I had a bit of a value there. So I embraced that persona Mm-hmm. And as I explain it to people now, I think really it was just a performance. So um, the real Shanna was kind of in the quiet moments between with close family and friends, but the public personality of Shanna was kind of developing as a way to be accepted and loved and embraced. It was it was terrible, you know, like I, I was doing whatever I had to do to fit in with the mob, I'm so embarrassed to say. I mean, I shouldn't say embarrassed, but, you know, it's just the pattern was so clear, but it wasn't to me. Sorry, it is so clear in retrospect, but at the time I wouldn't have been able to identify it because I was so young, so naive and so muddled up, you know? Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah. And the world rewards young women who are people pleasers and shapeshifters and fun women who hide their pain they you know there's all kinds of rewards for being that person and it's really confusing because you think well I'm it's working (laughs) yeah you know know, and and the culture the culture in Australia and um, I'm sure worldwide but obviously I can only speak from a perspective here it is really geared towards booze at every corner at every function at every gathering like 
we are such a booze-focused nation. It's kind of like a badge of honour in this country to be a drinker um, and 100% more so in the country. And, um, yeah, so I think, I don't know, I, I felt like, okay, my identity is tied in with, you know, being this crazy flash wild, you know, outrageous chick who will do anything at the drop of a hat. And it's... um. <laughs> You know, really what I what I now say, it's quite, quite often when I talk now in a public setting, which I do a lot of public speaking now, um, you know, I'll say things like, I can't believe nobody at any point in my younger life came up to me and said, Shen, you know, I've got a feeling that behind this wild party girl exterior is a really wounded, really vulnerable girl in a lot of pain because this facade is very obviously a facade. But... No one ever said that. And it's, yeah, it's really funny. <clears throat> I make a point now, like I said, whenever I speak publicly to say, seriously, guys, believe me, if you are seeing a woman doing outrageous things, whether it's dancing on a bar or, or um, you know, sleeping with people indiscriminately, promiscuous behavior, outrageous behavior, behavior that has no kind of... Um, indicated that consequences matter like that it's very rarely an empowered woman doing that which society tells us it is and I'm going to call BS on that and say it's never about an empowered woman it's always about a woman with something right in her deepest heart of hearts that is terribly injured and fearful and it's always a front you know and I'll always say that and very rarely have I sat with somebody who resonates and, and they've always said, yeah, it, it was 100% the same situation with me. My, my rebellion, my acting out, my crazy behaviour, um, it was never about being free. It was always about being lost. But it's, it's a game we play to get by, you know? So I'm curious about if someone had said that to you back then, do you think you were ready to, to say, yes, you're right, I'm hurting, let me open up, or do you think it would have just planted a seed that might have taken a while for you to be able to accept? I think I was, I think I had focused so heavily on this fake identity that I wasn't even willing to hear it. I would sort of, <laughs> I would sort of slip into the, you know, raucous laughter of, oh, how ridiculous of you to say that, you know, I love who I am, or whatever. I, I think I was completely. I had sort of programmed myself into this survival mode. Um, I don't think I heard it. Um, no, yeah, I don't think I did. <laughs> I yeah. think I just was pretending to, I was fiercely, fiercely protecting my um, shell. Yeah. I think, I, I wonder the same thing, you know, if someone had sat me down and said, listen, mm. you're, you're doing great, but I can see that you're, you're carrying a heavier load than you need to. I, I think mm. I would have really pushed that away but I might have thought about it later <laughs> I, think, I think in my heart of hearts Jean I would have thought about it in quiet moments but I'm not sure about you but with me I couldn't cope with quiet moments because that is when the demons would descend and so yeah. my purpose was in drowning out that quiet voice and those things that forced me to think about the truth of what was going on in my life. And like, you know, at that point I was a binge drinker. Um, I worked really hard. I got good grades. I was a, I was a studious kid. Um, I always had been. 
And it's interesting, don't you think, like the manifestation of alcoholism, as we all know, or someone listening may not know, but, you know, it starts out as the cute blonde party girl dancing on tables and being wild, quote, unquote. But over a course of two decades, it ends up as a chronic alcoholic ready to take their own life. You know, and it's funny, though, even though I wasn't in active alcoholism at that point, I believe the passion, that really unhealthy thinking, that denial, um, that um, kidding, you know, I was kidding myself, that those really sneaky behavior patterns snuck in at that point, but they just got bigger and badder and worse. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I yeah. And it's, sometimes uh, I wonder yeah. if... If the alcohol is a symptom of the pain, and the pain is a symptom of the alcohol, you know, you know, oh. a little chicken and egg situation, it just yep. all feeds on itself in such a circular motion. So oh. one thing I yeah. tell people when they say, like, mm. okay, I'm drinking more than I should, and I want to quit, but, but you know, everything is just working for me. Like, you know, maybe mm. I don't need to quit because everything's going so well. Mm. What I tell them is that it always escalates. So how if you have things going perfectly right now, but you're going to continue drinking, mm. it won't stay this way forever. Yeah. There will be a tipping point. So where yep. did that tipping point come for you? Where, when did it stop being um, manageable? Yeah, great question. Um, I reckon my late 20s really was when I became aware, but I still wasn't ready. So following university, unfortunately for me, and again, this is a cliche, as old as time, a girl who's been abused and damaged you know, I fell into a relationship with an abusive man um, and my 20s were really a nightmare. So um, by the time my late 20s rolled around, I was, profound damage had been done and this um, this alter ego sort of, you know, survival thing was going on. Um, but I noticed in my late 20s, I had started to slip into the pattern of drinking nightly to help me get to sleep. It was only a couple of glasses of wine, but it was a big glass of wine, you know, and then it was two big glasses of wine. Um, in my early 30s, I, um, a beautiful man who would go on to become my husband, um, and we spent some time um, in the centre of Australia in a, an amazing location called Alice Springs, we travelled up there together to do some tour guiding. Um, so taking backpackers on these amazing three-and-a-half-day camping trips all around the iconic, famous places you would have heard of, like Uluru or, or Ayers Rock, as it used to be known. Um, and let me tell you, if you are a budding alcoholic, <laughs> probably the worst career you could choose to, to transition into is tour guiding. It is all about the party, all about the drink. So... Um, and where we were living in this place called Alice Springs, it's it's kind of, <laughs> it's got the highest percentage, I think, of alcoholics in Australia. So, yeah, honestly, <laughs> that was not a good move. Um, and so, and in this particular desert town in the middle of nowhere, the attitude was it's five o'clock always. You know what I mean? It didn't matter what day, what time it was. It was this party. It was like a Bermuda Triangle where nothing counted, nothing was real. And everybody living in that place was transient and had this crazy backstory. It's it's a phenom- phenomenal place to visit and live in, but not if you're an alcoholic in the making. <laughs> and uh, look, I think really that's where my alcoholism kicked in 
because it was it was nightly heavy drinking with all of the backpackers, but then it was drinking when you were off tour. Um, and I think it really escalated at that point. And thankfully, eventually, Tim, my beautiful husband and I, we moved back to our um, hometown to settle down and save some money and our livers were hurting and our bank's bank balance was hurting. <laughs> Um, you know, we were just, it was like shivers. We'd really better get home and grow up. This is out of control, this, this crazy life. And so, excuse me for a sec. <coughs> Sorry, I'm fighting a bit of a cold. Um, yeah, so we came back home and grew up, quote, unquote. But those alcoholic kind of patterns were really set. And ultimately, the tipping point was in my mid-30s, we tried to have a family and, um, Basically, long, long, long story short is we failed. And an even longer story short again is that the inability to have kids, um, that was my tipping point. Um, everything I think that I had pushed to one side in terms of the grief of what had happened to me and what had been taken from me as a young woman came back with a vengeance. And, you know, I kind of slipped into the mindset of really like all of that happened and now this is happening. And I just, I just went into a completely brand new level of total self-destruction. Um, and it was weird, you know, we were going through fertility treatments and I would go weeks and sometimes a couple of months on end of really mad health kicks. Like, and it's really funny, even when I was drinking, I was always a bit of a health nut. It was really weird. So I'd go for a run and eat really good food <laughs> and sort of have this healthy lifestyle by day. But then by night, I'd like go, oh, bugger it, I can't cope. I'm going to crack a bottle of wine open. So it was like I had this dual life going the whole time. But that escalated exponentially with the infertility. And what I noticed was with each fertility failure, my falling off of the wagon got more serious and more swift and the intervals got shorter and now, as, a, as someone who speaks to alcoholics all the time, I now recognise that was me relapsing again and again while walking in chronic denial. Um, and I would sort of excuse my behaviour and say to people, oh, you don't understand the life I've had. It's been so tough. It's been so hard. And again, to bring in, I guess, recovery terminology, I was now walking in really bitter resentment and fear. Um, I was so angry. Um, I was so full of bitterness as to what had happened and that this was now what my life looked like. And it just, oh, Jane, it just got worse and worse and worse. And by my late 30s, I was suicidal um, and my drinking had now begun to affect everything from work to health to finances to relationships. I had lost the ability to hide how serious things had become. Um, I still didn't drink during the day and I still didn't drink every day. And so in my infinite ignorance about the disease of alcoholism, I thought that meant I could not possibly be an alcoholic because I was still high functioning and still successful and I still presented really well to the public. So I thought, like I honest to God thought, well, I can't be an alcoholic because they're homeless people in the gutter and I look pretty good and I still sound okay. So obviously it can't be me. So the denial was reinforced by the stereotypes of what an alcoholic was. I had been told and taught that alcoholism equaled clutching a brown paper bag in the morning and drinking every day, and it wasn't me. So I was like, well, I don't know what I even am, but I'm obviously not that. And so I just got worse and worse and worse. Mm -hmm. um, 
and being isolated and in a rural and remote place, there's nothing available, you know, and I would actually go to doctors and say, doctor, doctor, I think I'm in trouble. Like, I don't think what's going on with me is normal. And they'd look at me and say, oh, you look all right to me, Dale. How about you just cut back a bit and come back in a month? Like, honestly, they would look at me and go, you look, you look great, you look fit. Um, <laughs> medical professionals were not picking it up um, at all. And there was no other service or support in our remote area equipped with the knowledge or information to help me. And I just kept slipping through the cracks. Yeah, and uh, the tipping point was me... Um, Hang on one sec. Sorry, I had to have a sip of water. <laughs> um, <laughs> I basically, um, yeah, my blackout drinking just was chronic now. And um, one day my husband came home to find me passed out at the bottom of a flight of concrete stairs at the back of the house we were living in, in a pool of blood with a great big injury to my head. Um, I woke up the following morning in emergency to see my husband just, just so distraught and so distressed. And when we got home, you know, we were sitting there and he was, he was stroking my face and he just said, sweetheart, you know, I don't know what to do anymore. I've gone from fearing a call from the ambulance or the police to say that you're dead or that you've hung yourself or that, you know, you've crashed into a tree and he said, you know, that's a phone call I've been fearing for years. And he just and he just burst into tears and he said, I don't know, is, is there another way out? Is that honestly what, is that all that we have left, you know? Um, oh, anyway, yeah, it's funny. I always get really emotional telling the story of that part because yeah. I just saw that he was utterly, utterly broken. And, um, yeah, look, I, I just realised that, I was going to die. Like I reckon, and it's funny, my family and I were talking only last night and my sister-in-law said, yeah, you know, at the end there, we were thinking that you literally had maybe six to 12 months left. We were convinced you would die either by, you know, by suicide or, or just a massive health crisis um, because we knew you could not sustain what was going on. Yeah. And, um, I finally reached out and contacted a, um, I rang an AA helpline a week after that had happened and that was the turning point. Um, I, uh, I rang an AA number and that resulted in me doing a six hour round road trip to meet a lady in a town three hours away and what it all boiled down to, and this is the mind blowing truth of this, you know, the, what saved my life was sitting down and spending the day with a recovered alcoholic who I identified with. And you know what's extraordinary, Jean? I was expecting, I guess, a really rough-looking older person who had holes in their coat because the stereotype was so firmly imprinted in my brain. And guess who walked out of the building that day to meet me? It was a beautiful, young, fit, healthy, attractive gorgeous woman who spoke well, dressed well, presented well. And my eyeballs nearly popped out of my head. I was like, you're an alcoholic? And she smiled and she said, actually, I'm a recovered alcoholic. And bam-o, that day changed my life, <laughs> you know. And so that, what drives you to tell your story? Sorry, hun, could you repeat that? Oh, I'm hearing an echo. <laughs> oh, really? Um, 
does that uh, does that motivate you to tell your story? Just knowing how much it helped you to have your stigma and stereotype of what an alcoholic was to have that shattered by meeting someone in recovery. Does that motivate you to help others by doing the same thing now? Oh, a hundred percent. Like that that conversation literally changed the course of my life and it became the foundation, if you want to skip forward to today, that conversation led to my recovery and that recovery led to me realizing that um so many people don't have access to that basic information, insight and connection and um relatability. Yeah. And that's basically very, very long story, once again, short. That is how Sober in the Country was created and came to be. Um, can you hear me okay, Jean? Is that echo gone? I can. Or? Okay. I can hear Go you ahead. now. Yeah. Um, uh, so, wait, I don't, I don't want to make you jump ahead because I want to hear what happened next. So, tell sure. us how you did it. How did you go from being a blackout drinker in absolute emotional agony to yeah. finding recovery? You know what? Um, it was part miracle and it was part hard work. Um, my friend, Ali, who worked walked me through those early days, she gave me information. She equipped me with knowledge. She equipped me with literature and she equipped me with some really good straight talk. And she gave me information I'd never previously had access to, which was to inform me how the disease of alcoholism looks, how it works, how it manifests, and the fact that basically somebody like me could never be a normal drinker. I couldn't be cured, but I could certainly be treated. And that meant never drinking again. And she showed me how that could be done. Um, so the first year of my recovery, I literally changed every single thing about my life. And I worked with her side by side. And every piece of advice she gave me, every piece of literature she gave me, I immersed myself 100%. I completely acknowledged for the first time in my life that I was an alcoholic. I spoke the truth to myself. I spoke the truth to my family and my friends. And I said, you guys, this is what's going on. And I'm going to die if I don't get on top of this. So I need to change my life in every single way. This is how that's going to look. This is what I'm going to do. And I took all of the energy. And as you and I both know, and, and listeners may not be aware, alcoholics are generally pretty extraordinary people. Um, because, you know, we've been functioning on like 3% for years. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, when, when we get all of our energy and drive and ridiculous tenacity together, we're pretty extraordinary people. <laughs> you know, so I took all of that crazy energy and harnessed it and went, right, this now gets channeled into saving my life. And I did that. And um, I, I quit the work that I had been doing, which saw me traveling and staying away in hotels. I refused to leave home for that first year. I locked myself down. I didn't go out after five o'clock. I changed everything. I took the advice that I needed to change people, places and things around me in order to win this battle. Um, I told my good friends, if you want to catch up with me, it's now going to be over coffee or breakfast. It's never going to happen in a pub um, and you are not to bring alcohol to my house and I'm not going to visit you at your house if there's going to be alcohol involved. Um, <laughs> like I took it as seriously as how it needed to be taken and I put measures in place. You know, I planned 
I, uh, I, st- I kind of studied literature and, and information like it was a university degree upon which my life depended. Um, yeah, look, honestly, Jean, I just took it so seriously. Um, what kind of a response did you get, Shanna? What, what did people, were they surprised? Did you get pushback? Were they accepting? How did it go over? You know what? <laughs> it's really funny. Um, because one of my frequently asked questions from people I work with now is, oh, my God, what happened when you told your friends? And I said, okay, let me give you an analogy. Have you ever been around a gay friend when they come out of the closet and they look at me and they're like, what? And I was like, you know, your gay friend calls a dinner party and you all sit down together and he chinks his glass and says, guys, I've got something I need to tell you. And he says, I'm gay. And you all go, oh, <laughs> we've known that for years, you silly, silly thing. Yeah, good stuff. How can we support you now that you've come out with it? (laughs) And it was exactly like that for me. Nobody was surprised. They had said to me, Shan, we've known for a long time there is a big problem. We may not have known the extent, but now that you're telling us the truth, it's awesome. How can we help you? So honestly, 90% of the people close to me were beside themselves with joy. They were so happy to hear me speaking the truth and they couldn't get around me quickly enough. Um, so it's extraordinary because I was terrified. I have to tell you, I was just so terrified. What will people say? What will they do? Are they going to, you know, drop me like a hot potato? Um, sadly, in bigger circles where it wasn't my immediate friends and family, there was kickback. So in my country town, some of the responses from people who I now understand were never my real friends included things like, oh, how ridiculous, you're not an alcoholic, or you used to be fun, or um, come on, just have one, for God's sake, you'll be right. Um, Yeah, honestly, some of the kickbacks shocked me because after I had said to them, no, no, you guys, you don't understand, I'm an alcoholic. If I have just one, I'm, I'm stuffed, like it could end in death. So please don't ever say that to me again. And they might roll their eyes and say, oh, that's just typical bloody AA fanaticism or whatever it might be that they said. And I said, no, guys, it's not. It's reality for me. This, this thing will kill me. Anyway, so um, it was a really steep learning curve on how to recognise toxic um, acquaintances and friendships versus genuine ones. And uh, as the famous saying goes, if you want to find out who your real mates are, get sober. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, and thankfully, my my beautiful friend that I worked with in the early days, she'd given me the heads up on that and she had warned me. And so God love her. She, you know, so most of what happened in that first year, which as you and I know, is a really important, important year, I had been given the knowledge and information of what to expect. And so I was equipped and I was armed um, and it was really great to have had that information. So, you know, when those tricky conversations happened, I was like, look, that's fine if you don't understand it, but you and I are probably going to have to go in separate ways because if you can't embrace sober me, well, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Too bad, I guess, you know. If that's what our friendship was based on and nothing more, then it wasn't a sincere friendship anyway. So there was, you know, there was some breaking off, uh, some breaking away. But in terms of the people who loved me and cared for me, all it did was go from strength to strength to strength and exactly as my friend had told me, once people saw that I was willing and prepared to do, you know, whatever it took to regain my health and my life and my sanity and myself, forgiveness kept coming at me in waves. Um, 
you know, I sort of had to walk through a recovery program of, you know, reaching out to people who I'd hurt and offended and damaged. And that was extremely humbling and extremely confronting, as I'm sure you can remember. That was, oh, that was hardcore, you know, sort of going with your hat, you know, hat in your hand to people who you loved, who you had offended or destroyed friendships with and sort of having to look at them and say, here I am with my heart in my hands to say to you, I am so sorry um, for what I did, what I said, how I behaved. I don't expect to be, um, I don't expect to be completely, you know, um, exonerated for those choices, but here's why that happened. And I ask your forgiveness if you will give it to me, you know, and you know what, 99% of the time it was freely given to me. It was so powerful because they knew that I had changed. They could see it, um, you know, and I spent time trying to educate people and say, look, when I was in chronic alcoholism, I was literally not even myself. The person I was is not who I am. I'm not saying that's an excuse, but it's kind of how it happens when this disease has a grip on you. And, oh, God, honestly, Jean, I was just so sorry, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. I stopped with the I stopped with the BS. I stopped with the lies. I stopped with the manipulation of truth. I stopped asking people to you know excuse me because I'd had a really traumatic past. I said no. Now I start adulting. Now I start facing up to what I have done. I accept the consequences of my behaviour. Um, I grew up really, really, really quickly. Um, but look, yeah, it was like it was. I, it was 100% of my energy went into my recovery. There were no excuses left. Is the best way. Are I you able to it. access recovery meetings out in the country where you are? No, um, no, there was nothing. Um, and in fact, at three months sober, um, I started a recovery meeting in my country town. Um, which a lot of people said, oh, you can't do that far too soon. And I said, well, if not me, then who? Seriously, you know. So I did it. Um, And my um, friend supported me in that decision and gave me a bit of a hand. And uh, so, no, I um, had nothing. So I started something and I did that for uh, nearly two years. Um, But to be really honest with you, it was very poorly attended, honestly, one night we had six people and I nearly fell off my chair. I was so excited. But on average, on average, I was by myself, sitting in a big meeting room, um, hoping, praying, <laughs> wishing for people to walk through that door so I could offer them, you know, at least at least another person who got it to sit with and speak with. But, yeah, look, um, yeah, it just didn't happen. So, did you use the internet then or did you travel to seek support or did you just muddle through on your own? Yeah, look, I really had to muddle through on my own because it was a minimum of a two-hour road trip to get to the nearest support meeting and and, and I did that a couple of times and half the time at that meeting there was nobody either so it became apparent that that was not going to work. So really I just used online resources. I joined a few online groups. Um, Yeah, I mean I was really having to do it by myself to be really honest with you. I, and it was during that period that I came to the startling conclusion that there is just very, very little available in an isolated rural setting for recovery. Like it was just blindingly obvious how unbelievably lacking in resources and support country people like me were. Yeah, it was shocking to me. Mm. 
And I assume that this led to the birth of Sober in the Country. Tell us about that. Yeah, you're dead right. It really did. Um, So, uh, look, it's interesting. So it's a four-year transition to be where I am today. Um, But after a year and a half to two years of recovery, and I started looking around, and my brain was really starting to fire, and I'd recovered physically physically. And at the time, I was a really successful photographer, um, but this burning kind of desire started to happen in my heart as I realized how appallingly alone myself and other people like me must be in the country. And um, I was watching a TV show one night called Australian Story, and this amazing, beautiful woman who was a TV reporter um, was sharing her recovery story publicly. And I went, holy moly, she's speaking publicly about this? Whoa, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> and, um, you know, because certain, um, you know, there are certain groups who, who are quite against that. So um, I sort of sat there and I processed this information and I thought about it and I turned to my husband and I said, Tim, I think I'm going to do what she's doing in the country. And he said, I think that's a really bloody great idea, sweetheart. I think that's an awesome idea because obviously there's not enough happening. Anyway, that idea sat there for months and months because it was really important to me in the early days to have credibility behind me, whatever I did, you know, because let's face it, alcoholics are not generally very reliable people. (laughs) And (laughs) I wanted some really good, solid credibility and time behind me before I embarked on anything. And so I kind of had that in the back of my mind. And so what I started doing was just ever so gently sharing a few things on my personal social media, you know, like, oh my goodness, guess what? It's two years since I gave up alcohol, you know, and then then all of a sudden it was three years and all of a sudden I was sharing a bit more and a bit more and a bit more and the response was really, really astonishing. People were like, whoa, that's amazing, Shan. Yeah, you look really good. Uh, like there was a lot of encouragement, a lot of very positive discussion. So basically over the past four years, it kind of organically grew from me just chatting online and then I entered a um, a Rural Woman of the Year Award. I was nominated for it because what I had been doing as a volunteer within my community was getting noticed, I guess. Um, <clears throat> and very long story short, and because I've, I've been working with people behind the scenes for four years, just, you know, as we do, as we do. Um, and a lot of people going, wow, Shan, you know, you're actually really helping a lot of people. And I was like, yeah, that's great. That's what I do. I love it. You know, that's what my life is about now because if not me, you know, then who? A conversation can change a life. So how am I ever going to ignore how much impact that can have on someone if my honest discussions can do for me what was, you know, sorry, do for someone else what was done for me? That's, I'll do that until the day I die. <laughs> And um, anyway, off the back of being nominated for this Rural Woman of the Year Award, um, it gave me a really big lift, (coughs) excuse me, sorry, (coughs) a bit of a lift and a leg up in the media, so to speak, and I had a bit of media exposure. And I went, you know what, the time is right now for me to make this into something different. And um, as we sit here in April 2019, It has all developed and progressed into an online rural health movement, I call it, yeah, that I have branded Sober in the Country. And all all it's about 
is an online space and an online conversation very, very specifically tailored to rural and remote Australians just like me who don't have access to anywhere near what is necessary in terms of support, conversation, information, etc. And much like your page, you know, our purpose or my purpose here is to basically give people an an opportunity to learn the truth about alcoholism so that we can break stigmas and get much more fair income and real and authentic about our chats in the rural Australian space because no one is doing anything like that in this country. And I mean nobody. Like, as you know, um, sobriety is actually pretty trendy at the moment um, globally. It's it's really starting to trend, which is so awesome. <laughs> but... Um, I was aware, it was very apparent to me very quickly that our our culture of alcohol worship in the country is pretty fierce and I knew that it was a demographic and an area that needed a lot more support, a lot more attention and a lot more focus. So I made it a very, very, very specific conversation for people like me, basically. You know, so working, contributing men and women who um, – well, I'll read it to you, I guess, straight from my page. You know, it's like it's a peer-to-peer conversation addressing an unseen and unheard minority, which is high-functioning rural people who are perceived as successful but who are, in fact, maintaining an unhealthy, ongoing relationship with alcohol or who have progressed into chronic addiction but are still working full-time and contributing to communities. These are men and women who are not eligible for support, even if it was available, which it isn't, Um, And they're often dismissed by society, friends and healthcare professionals as having a problem or needing support because the rest of their life is superficially looking A-OK. So that's Mm. exactly my mission through this conversation Um, because no one looks at us. Mm. And is there even a further further, um, um, culture culture of self-sufficiency? In the, in the country. Yes. Oh, I'm, I'm going again. <laughs> oh, are you? Okay. How's that now? You're not at my end. Um, oh, good. Okay. How's that? Okay. Uh, it's it's my voice across the ocean is is calling back to me. It's um, your yep, dulcet it's tones. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I think before I got distracted by the sound of my own voice, the question was, <laughs> is um. Is there that sort of dogged self-sufficiency is sort of part of being a, a rural person, being a farm person and not oh, needing other people for yeah. things. But connection is so key to recovery. Is it hard yep. to get people to buy into that? Uh, you've hit the nail on the head, Jean. And I tell you what, yes, um, country people are, you know, their greatest strength is their greatest weakness. They're so stoic so capable, so extraordinary. And like, I don't know if you know this, but right now we are in the middle of a horrific 10-year drought in Australia and across huge swathes of the country. And we have a lot of country people really doing it hard. I've never, ever, ever seen it this bad. Um, Historically, country people are so brave and so capable. They just keep getting up. They keep showing up. They do extraordinary things in extraordinary adversity. Um, and historically we don't ask for help because we kind of pride ourselves on being tough and stoic and resilient. Mm -hmm. And so, 
Yes, absolutely. One of the greatest challenges that I've had, and I've now been really intensively working through Sober in the Country with rural people all over the outback for the last 14 months, like it's been a full-time job as a volunteer, (laughs) great unpaid job. Um, And the feedback I constantly get, particularly from Aussie blokes or men, (laughs) sorry about the vernacular, um, they, uh, they... are so conditioned to not asking for help or recognising or speaking about the fact that they need it, that they struggle to learn a new way of thinking. It is definitely changing. It is definitely improving, but that is still a massive area I have noticed where um, men reaching out for help with their drinking come and come into a lot of difficulty with other blokes who don't want to talk about it. They just want to get back to drinking beer, you know? So they kind of, there's a bit of resistance there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, look, it's interesting. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's, it's a challenge. Um, and in fact, I, I was expecting a great deal more kickback with Sober in the Country than what I got. So a bit like with my own recovery, there's definitely challenges, but overwhelmingly people are more receptive than what I imagined. So it's a bit of a mixed bag. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, the age-old country tough guy mentality is a, is a tricky one to crack. There's no doubt about it. Um, what I'm seeing happen, which is really extraordinary, is that when one bloke steps away and starts speaking, the ripple effect is absolutely astonishing. So, yeah, it's really powerful. It gives me goosebumps when I think about some of the men I've worked with in the last 14 months who've permitted me to share their blogs and their stories. Um, And I swear it's like we're just a little army of (laughs) little sober ambassadors out here, (laughs) you know, breaking it down into language that is relatable, understandable and very common. Um, You know, because we do, we really embrace a casual alcoholism in the country. It's it's rampant. And uh, when people respond negatively, we, and uh, you and I would both know this, it's often because people are challenged because if if someone like Joe Blow has got a problem, then his mate, <laughs> you know, Joe Smith is like, oh, God, if you've got a problem, I probably do too. So that's where it gets uncomfortable. You know what I mean? That mirror effect. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. Yes. And I have to think, too, that it it took us a long time as a culture to get to this point of, of you know, denial and shame and, and stigma. Yeah. That, that evolved over a long period of time. So we can't just undo it with the slick of a light switch. We have to be really persistent yeah. and yeah. patient. Yeah. And I, I think it, it, it seems like it can be a little bit of a slow burn, but then once it... Once it goes, it really goes. And and as long as you we keep showing up, then when people are ready, they know where to go. Yeah. They're like, oh, yeah, yes. Shan's doing yes. that thing. Now yes. I know where to go. But it might Absolutely. be a while before they're really ready to do it. So that's, that's an, exciting to me that you are becoming the change that you saw needed to happen. Um, I, oh. I love your attitude about that. It's beautiful. Oh, honestly, I, I regard my story now as the greatest blessing of my life, and I know that sounds super cheesy, but I I never dreamed in a million years the very worst thing that ever happened to me would be the thing that gave me my focus and my purpose, but that's precisely what's happened. Um, you know, um, and being a disruptor 
and a leader in a space that's difficult and challenging is not for everyone. And I now see that the fact that we couldn't have kids kind of actually equipped me for that because I wouldn't do this if I had young children at all. I would never do that because their needs would come first. So the the fact that I can get up and travel this country and fly, you know, at the drop of a hat to speak at an event is just ridiculous. And it's an uncommon set of um, circumstances that enable me to do that. Um, you know, and I have this ability to communicate and speak publicly. And it's like all of these ridiculous things that happened in my life have just literally positioned me. And I just think it's 100% a God thing. I think this was always the plan, <laughs> um, you know, to carry a message of hope far and wide in a country where that's been traditionally resisted. And, uh, you know, my vision is a future where we treat alcoholism as a disease like we treat all diseases. And one of my most successful, you know, kind of ways that I tackle the trickiness of this chat is to say to people, have a look what happens in a country town when someone gets cancer. We are so quick to support and get around and lift up our fallen friend. We raise money, we raise awareness, we bake goods, we take care of kids, we harvest crops, we, you know, we do everything. We're magicians. We're amazing. But when someone gets alcoholism, we tell them to go and be anonymous and we isolate them. And I'm challenging my country peers all the time to say that is not good enough because most of the time we've been sitting there next to these mates in a pub feeding them alcohol and when they're big enough and brave enough to stand up and say, I can't do this, we are so awkward about it, we kind of isolate them, you know, that can happen. And I'm like, that's just insane behaviour. You know, we need to behave like a community no matter what. And I challenge people all the time and uh, it is uncomfortable for them. But you know what? It's really, really, really having an impact. Um yeah, and if I'm the person that has to make it a bit uncomfortable before we get over some humps, more than happy to be it. And uh, the encouragement I get is insane. You know, I get messages and emails from all over Australia all the time um, saying, Shanna, you have to keep going with this work. It is critical. It is so good. Um, I don't say much on your page because I'm a bit nervous too, but my God, please keep going. So there's this really massive tide of support in you know behind the scenes for the conversation um publicly it's hard slog for me because it is an uncomfortable thing for people but regardless of those challenges in the past 14 months I've taken this conversation national um without any funding without any support with nothing except my creative brain and my sheer ridiculous faith and and belief that this is going to happen at a much larger scale yeah like I'm so ridiculously oh, focused yeah that's mm. fantastic I'm so happy for you and I'm so happy for your country <laughs> that there are people like you that are saying hey let's shake this up let's make this happen we need to get on board and and yep. start helping one another in the few moments we have left I just want to take you back and ask a little bit about the recovery part of your sobriety because we always say on this show, you know, first you get sober, you quit drinking, and then you recover and you start healing those old wounds. Yes. And so you talked about sexual assault and mm -hmm. you also talked about infertility. And, you know, on this show, just in this season alone, just since January alone, I've had multiple guests 
talk about those two things as being significant oh, wow. factors that led wow. to their ultimate, you know, need to numb their feelings. And um, so it occurs to me that if that many guests have been affected in that way, surely, uh, you know, exponentially more listeners have been affected. So I'm wondering where you start with healing that part of you. And, you know, you you talked about having a lot of grief and a lot of Mm. unprocessed pain around that. Mm. How did you start untangling that? And and where, where do you point people to begin healing that part of themselves? Oh, gosh, good question. Um, Look, to be honest, there's no facility out here that could help me in terms of support like counsellors or psychologists. We just, there's just no one I have ever found in the rural setting that was, you know, connected with. So I had to kind of go that alone as well. Um, I really, for me, it came down to my personal faith. Um, I, it was a little bit like recovery from alcohol itself. I had to surrender. I had to... I had to really walk in forgiveness and acceptance and um, let it go. I had to let it go. It had such a stronghold over me, whether it was the abusive partner or the bad guys that did the bad things. You know, I was a classic case of somebody whose resentment and grief and anger determined the entire course of my life and forever altered it. Um, I... I did a lot of praying. <laughs> I did a lot of um, surrendering it, like I said. I was like, I can't do this. I can't do it. But, you know, the boss upstairs can, so I'm just going to give it to him. I just can't, <laughs> you know. Um, I, I, also, I also kind of, like I said before, chose to grow up and accept responsibility for my own poor decisions along the way. Um, it, was, it was just, oh, look, it was a bit of a holistic thing, I think, Jane. It was... Yeah, it was a it was a very long, 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 complicated road. But above all else, I chose to become the master of my own destiny. Mm-hmm. And I thought if I can be given the miracle of recovery, I can use like I, I guess I made a really conscious choice that these things happened to me and no they were not fair, but I decided to stop letting them define me and I wanted to actively used the very, like I said not long ago, I wanted to turn the very, very worst of what had happened into the very best because I recognised I had a certain skill set and I thought, like you said a second ago, I'm not the only girl this has happened to. But what I have that other girls may not have is the ability to speak publicly, to speak openly and to recover out loud and to be a beacon of hope. And I just turned it around and went, that's how I'm going to use this. And I will change it in my mind from a curse to a blessing and I'll make it a good thing. And that's exactly what's happened. Yeah. Oh, you're amazing. That's so inspiring and incredible. Oh. Uh, how, can, how can our listeners find you and how can they reach you? Tell us about your website and about all the initiatives that, uh, that they can have a look at. Well, if anyone wants to visit, you will find me on all the socials. So just www.soberinthecountry.com.au. It's a, um, it's a pretty basic little website. It just tells a bit about me and the vision. I've got some blogs. You can listen to other media. I did a TED Talk last year, bits and pieces like that. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm also on um, Instagram, Twitter, et cetera. Um, and look, at this point in time, yeah, it's just a, it's an online conversation, but 
my prayer is that 2019 will be the year of breakthrough where I get funding and the government will get in behind me and support me or some amazing, awesome philanthropist will go, let's help this chick. That's what I hope. <laughs> I'm working, I'm working on that. I'm working on it all the time, putting that one out there into the universe. Um, my plan is uh, within the next year or two to make this a, a sustainable um, business model, so to speak, that whether it's government funded or privately funded and so that through the website I can actually get a program online so that my rural peers can go, bang, I'm going to jump onto Sober in the Country, I'm going to log on and I'm going to do that six-week course. So, you know, that's the vision is to have more more resources accessible through this site and through this page. So for now it's the conversation and... Um, People, you know, people are pretty active. I have a little private support group that runs off it. Yeah, so more than welcome to search me and look me up and um, flick a message. Love to hear from our listeners. Um, yeah, and feel free to cross your fingers and toes that <laughs> funding will happen in 2019. So, you know, I want to get this national. I really do. Well, that yeah. is excellent. I hope you do too, and I hope you'll come back and tell us all about it when that happens. Shanna, thank you so much for being here today and sharing your story. It's just been such a pleasure, Jean. Thank you for allowing me, like, yeah, the opportunity. I really, really appreciate it, and I hope, I hope it helps a few of your listeners. I really do. I do too. Listeners, <laughs> you have just heard the story of Shanna Wan, Sober in the Country. That's www.soberinthecountry.com.au. And um, if you want, you can also write to me, thebubblehour at gmail.com, and I will make sure that Shanna gets your message. That's everything we have for this week. I am off to the Grand Canyon next week, so give me two weeks to go have some fun, and then we will be back with more Bubble Hour episodes at the end of the month. That's all for this week, everyone. Until next time, take good care. Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free From the power Weakness had on me In a dark corner Is where shame lies behind We think you're strong it all it just stays and wait there to rob you of your pride. Turn the light on, turn the light on, you can shine. When you see me, oh, I did that. Not proud that was me, and when I face it, I take back a little dignity. I'm not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from power. You don't have to shout it out on Main Street to be clear. You don't need to whisper to confession them here. Person you should talk to is looking at you in there. And the one who matters most can always hear. When you say, oh, I'm proud to